Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of Suspense, Mysteries, and Supernatural Thrillers, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Each week, I'll talk about one episode of Buffy in order, covering plot turns and other story elements. The discussion will be spoiler-free, except at the very end, and I'll give you plenty of warning. This week, we'll be talking about The Harvest the second half of the pilot episode. So in terms of plot points, we'll cover, um, we'll pick up at the midpoint and go through the turn at the three-quarter mark of the story into the climax and the falling action. We'll also be talking more about character development because I didn't get to do as much of that as I would have liked in the first episode and a bit about story questions and how that keeps us coming back even though the main plot resolved. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. The Harvest picks up right at the midpoint. So remember the protagonist at the midpoint typically throws caution to the wind, goes all in on her quest, or suffers a reversal or both. And we saw both last time. Buffy embraced being the slayer, both in her words and her actions, doing her first dusting and saying, don't you know who I am? Immediately suffered a reversal when Luke comes from behind her. She doesn't hear him. He says, I don't care. He doesn't care who she is. And he throws her into this coffin. He's about to kill her. Cut. So we pick up right there and Buffy is able to push Luke away, partly because of that cross she's wearing that uh, that angel gave her that she chose to wear. But I like to think regardless, she would have found a way to get Luke off of her. However, she isn't able to kill him or pursue him. Um, he disappears. She goes after the vampires to try to get Jesse and Willow back and Xander is with her. They are able to um, save Willow, but not Jesse. So he has been taken away with the vampires. Within a few minutes of the midpoint, the start of this episode, we see Buffy in the library and she further affirms her commitment now to being the Slayer. She says Jesse is her responsibility. No one else is going to go after him because she's the one. She is the one who got him killed. I'm pretty sure she says killed, even though we don't know yet that um, Jesse has been killed. But she is going to go after him. And she is definitely at this point embracing being the Slayer and feeling guilty for not doing it sooner. No doubt thinking that maybe she would have been able to prevent this. So from this point on, it is Buffy who is driving the story forward rather than just reacting to what is happening around her. Our next major Buffy scene is in the crypt again because she has figured out that Luke must have come from a passageway in the crypt. We see her encounter Angel once more. This scene doesn't really move the plot forward. He doesn't tell her enough that uh, that it makes a big difference. So in some ways, 
it's just angels showing up being cryptic and you could really lift this right out of the episode and it wouldn't change anything and yet the scene works because one it does move the subplot which at this point is it may be an exaggeration to call it a subplot I would say it is a season subplot of the Buffy and Angel how they will interact what will their relationship be this is one of those story questions who is Angel what is the deal with him There is chemistry between them, but is that a good thing, a bad thing? Is anything going to happen with that? Or is he just going to show up and give some information and disappear? The other thing that happens here, and this is what for me makes the scene compelling, is we have a little more than just Buffy, Angel, chemistry, question of who he is. She makes this sarcastic comment about, do you know what it's like to have a friend? And he... The way he responds, the silence, the look on his face shows that he he doesn't and Buffy realizes that and it is the first time that we see Angel vulnerable. Up to this point when we've seen him at all, he has seemed very in control. He's only sharing what he wants to share. He's not letting Buffy know very much about him but here he reacts and he can't help it and he is vulnerable and this is part of what makes us like a character and engage with a character so that also at least for me makes that scene engaging and is why I would not want to see it lifted out of the story even though for the main plot we don't need it and I love that because while as a writer because I do genre fiction and thrillers and suspense generally I'm really trying to make each scene move the story forward that's what helps keep a fast pace at the same time this shows there is that place for that quiet scene that shows this relationship develops these two people as long as there is enough tension within the scene to keep it interesting in itself that every single scene does not have to move that main plot or even a uh, clearly defined subplot because as I mentioned at this point we don't uh, there isn't really a Buffy Angel story arc for this pilot episode. We also get to learn quite a bit about Xander. In the first half of the pilot, we see Xander, we meet him, he's a bit awkward, he says the wrong thing, he's aware he says the wrong thing. We also see that Xander is very loyal because even though most of that first episode he's focused on trying to impress Buffy, Seemingly mainly just because she's the new girl and she's cute. And we see him skeptical when he hears, overhears her and Giles talking about her being the Slayer. Now he's having questions about Buffy. And when she's first saying, I gotta know where Willow is after Willow has gone off with the vampire, he is saying, oh, because you might have to slay a vampire. But as soon as he grasps that Willow is truly in danger, all that goes out the window and he is right there. He doesn't, he's not caring about, oh, Buffy's pretty and he's got to impress her. He's not caring that maybe the whole idea of vampires he doesn't believe in. He is right there to help Willow. 
And we see that again, and perhaps more so with Jesse, because now Jesse, he knows Jesse is in danger. He has seen the vampires, and he wants to help. And he does help. He goes down into the tunnels, and this is where we see that Xander also is courageous, because while he is petrified, and he really has no particular skills to offer, he still goes down into the tunnels to follow Buffy. And I love that he is uh, self-aware about that. We see his humor come through because she is saying, well, you know, did you bring anything with to help fight? And he says, yeah, the part of my brain that would have told me to bring those things was too busy telling me not to do this. This too makes Xander our person we can identify with because it really speaks to those times when we plow ahead with something that we know is a bad idea and we're a little bit in denial about that and it keeps us from being fully prepared for what we're doing. So it's that two sides of our brain. We also see another aspect of Xander which is his very deep insecurity and his strong feelings of inadequacy because yes he follows Buffy because of loyalty but he also uh, responds to her saying look I do this not you because I'm the slayer and he says something like that I knew you were going to throw that back at me well you know that applies to everybody that's not a specific thing to Xander Buffy's the slayer and nobody else is yet to him it feels very personal and he also links it with masculinity Um, he says something like I'm not enough of a man that Xander would have these feelings he's uh, I think they're Sophomores in high school at this time, it's adolescents. Most adolescents are struggling with what does it mean to be an adult? How do I become an adult? Often that also is tied up with gender and sexuality. So it's not probably not unique to Xander that he has these feelings, these fears, these feelings of inadequacy, that he relates them to what does it mean to be a man. But the fact that Buffy being a slayer stirs this up when when really that's so unrelated to any of those things tells us a lot about Xander. Overall though, I feel like the main driver of him following Buffy is that he wants to help his friend. Xander and Buffy in the tunnel is another great example of getting exposition in through conflict and in a tense situation because Buffy explains more of the rules of how to slay vampires to Xander, including this line I love where she says there was the football player and he'd been turned into a vampire and she beheads him with a little, little exacto knife. And it's such a great, uh, great line and it's sort of funny and it tells us more about Buffy's strength, what she can do, and how vampires can be killed, all within this very tense time because at any moment they could encounter vampires. Xander is definitely vulnerable and Buffy is reassuring him. So again, there is a reason for her to be telling him these things. He does not know them and he may need to know them in a second or two. We also have some really nice uh, willow 
characterization because we see her in the computer lab. Character growth, I should say. We see her in the computer lab and Cordelia is commenting on Buffy and saying bad things about her and Willow, who did not previously stick up for herself with Cordelia in the um, first episode, does stick up for Buffy. And she gets revenge by tricking Cordelia into deleting her computer program she has been working on. In the commentary, Joss said he saw this as Willow's first empowering moment, and it shows the beginning of her character arc and the influence of her friendship with Buffy. Not just that Buffy encouraged her to be um, sort of less timid generally, but because she has been through this experience with the vampires, with Buffy, and Willow has survived, so she feels more confidence. Which brings us to Cordelia. In the beginning, Cordelia in these two episodes, there is a lot of her that is the classic mean girl. So she isn't, she doesn't have a lot of layers in this pilot. Um, we see her being very nice to Buffy and Cordelia is, is popular. She has friends who follow her around. She is a foil for Buffy. We get this sense, even if we didn't know the story already, that Buffy was kind of a Cordelia, that she was one of the popular girls. I like to think Buffy was not a mean girl because of the way she reacts when Cordelia treats Willow the way she does. And the way Buffy then makes a point that she is going to be friends with Willow whether Cordelia likes it or not. Even though Buffy clearly does want Cordelia to like her. She's very upset when in the bronze she is looking for Willow and she almost stakes Cordelia. And Cordelia says, uh, I can't remember if Buffy hears it, but Cordelia says, I have to call everybody I know. So we, we know that Buffy... She's upset about that. She comments to Giles about her social life being on the critical list. So Buffy does care, but she is still going to be friends with Willow. Cordelia, though, does have something in this pilot that I really like. Whether I picked up on it the first time I watched, I'm not sure. But as I look back on it and I see her interacting with Jessie, Jessie, just as Cordelia is a foil for Buffy, I see Jessie as a foil for Xander. They both are obsessed with this new girl, new girl, and the initial attraction seems to be just, it's a new girl and she's pretty. It's not about who Buffy is. Likewise, all we really see from Jessie is he is pursuing Cordelia, but we don't get any any sense of that it's about who Cordelia is as a person. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But all we see is him very aggressively encroaching on her space, saying obnoxious things, not taking, uh, not even the hint, just not listening when she is clearly saying, get away from me, I am not interested in you. So in that sense, I see Jesse as the stepped up version of the things that we don't love about Xander. And Jesse is the unaware version. Xander says to Buffy when he first meets you, can I have you? And he meant to say, can I help you? He feels awkward and embarrassed that he has said, can I have you? Jesse seems beyond embarrassment. Um, he says things to Cordelia. He keeps pursuing her, though she's not interested. 
and he doesn't seem to have self-awareness about that. Cordelia, what I like is that she is so clear. And I feel like all of us have had those moments where we have what's going in our head and we don't say it because we think that will be too mean or someone is is approaching us, particularly for women and girls. And this must happen to um, non-females as well. But for me, it's something I'm primarily familiar with from talking to other girls and women, which is where a guy comes up to you and you are not interested and there is this line to walk. Most of us have had that happen on a bus or you know, if you take public transportation or on the street. And there is that you need to push this person away because you don't want to encourage him to hang around and to stay there. And yet, if you are too insistent, you are too cutting, you are even too clear, there could be a violent reaction. And it is kind of fun to watch Cordelia just shut Jesse down and say, I am not putting up with this guy who keeps coming over and is encroaching on my space and and doesn't want to take no for an answer. So that is part of what I like about Cordelia in this episode where other than that she seems to be kind of that classic mean girl. So all of this has grown from the midpoint, specifically from Buffy's commitment at the midpoint to go after Jesse and do everything she can to save him and prevent more harm. She goes down into the tunnel. Um, Xander follows her because she has made that decision to do that. The master also is acting in response to Buffy's commitment because, remember, He and Luke are talking. Master is upset that Luke has not brought back more humans, that Darla and the others have not brought back more humans for him to feed off of. And Luke says, there was a girl, she fought me, and she lived. And he and the Master agree that Buffy probably is the Slayer. This is the first time they have faced a Slayer in a long time. The fact that Buffy embraced being the slayer fought off luke triggers the master to instead of feeding off jesse turn him into bait so jesse now will be a way for the master to defeat buffy buffy's already coming down into the tunnels and she doesn't know this has been done but the key is she will think buffy is still i'm sorry she will think Jesse is still human and he will be able to lead her into a place of more danger, which is exactly what happens. So this has grown from Buffy's actions at the midpoint. In a well-structured story, we will see that strong midpoint propelling the story forward, the protagonist action propelling the story forward to the three-quarter turn and here that is exactly what happens from the midpoint to the three-quarter point the mission is to save jesse everything is done in pursuit of that right around 20 to 22 minutes into this episode which would be about 62 minutes into the 84 minute double episode arc 
Xander and Buffy are in a tight space in the tunnel and Jesse vamps out. So he has turned into a vampire and is now going to help the other vampires trap them. The entire story now shifts because we can't save Jesse anymore. So first, Buffy and Xander have to survive and get away which they do, they barely get out, and now they move forward and none of it is about saving Jesse. It is all about stopping the harvest. So the harvest has been there in the background, but now that becomes the new mission, the driving force. Quick side note on Jesse becoming bait. In the commentary, Joss notes that this was done to answer the question that often comes up in horror movies, which is why doesn't the villain just kill this person? Why doesn't the villain just kill Jesse? Making him bait, having the master have a reason for doing that, gives us a narrative reason for Jesse to survive up until the climax of the movie. So we can have that moment between Jesse and Xander and it isn't just, oh, the master didn't feel like killing him that day. Now that Buffy and Xander have gotten away, they're again in the library with Giles. He's explaining how the harvest works. That Luke is the vessel, that the more Luke feeds, the stronger the master gets so that the master can break free, roam the earth, and probably kill everybody. So now it is about stopping that from happening because this is the one time when this particular ritual can be performed. Buffy now needs to, uh, first they need to figure out where this will likely happen and they decide it must be the bronze. That's where you would have so many people there that could be fed off of. Buffy says she has to go home to get supplies and we have her encounter with her mom. So throughout this two episode arc, Buffy has encountered obstacle after obstacle and her mother now is one of the last obstacles to get where she needs to go. Getting supplies is that uh, sort of mechanical device that gets Buffy to the place where she has this confrontation with her mom. What I love about the way this is done is that the supplies aren't just, you know, they don't just get Buffy home and we forget about them. We see her get them and we get this nice metaphor of Buffy lifting out the top of her trunk, which has all her sort of day-to-day things and sort of Buffy, Buffy the girl, Buffy the high school student, lifts it out and underneath are all these supplies for killing vampires. And this really shows us very nicely Buffy's hidden life. And she takes all those supplies to the bronze and she gives them to her friends and they do use them in the climax. I like this so much because as writers, we all sometimes need to insert something to get our character, usually our protagonist, but maybe the antagonist, from one place to the next so that the next scene can happen. So it's it's kind of that connective tissue that brings us from point A to B. And it can feel like we shouldn't need to bring in something artificial or we shouldn't need to think up something to take the character from this point to the next. But this shows that yes, that is perfectly fine as long as that device has a narrative 
purpose as long as we make it pay off and here it does and now we have another scene that is this wonderful conflict because it could easily have been just angry mom who's mad at Buffy and grounds her because she got a call from the principal and on her very first day Buffy has already skipped class and that would be uh, that would be a legitimate conflict because it would be very real it comes out of the story Buffy did skip class her mom doesn't know why and it's not that unreasonable for her to get angry at Buffy but instead we get something so much more interesting and nuanced and layered because Buffy says or Joyce says yes I got a call from the principal you already skipped class we just got here Buffy wants to go out and Joyce doesn't just say you're grounded you're punished she says no the tapes say that I need to learn to say no So Joyce has been listening to parenting tapes, which would be now audiobooks if it were being made now. But she says she's listening to these parenting tapes. She also says she's read about the dangers of over-nurturing. So we learn from this that Joyce cares about being a good parent. She is making an effort. She's listening to tapes. She's reading. Probably she feels guilty that something about the way she was parenting is what caused or contributed to Buffy getting into trouble, getting kicked out of school, and she really wants to do something better or different for her daughter. She wants to be a better mom so that this isn't just angry mom uh, punishing Buffy or even, you know, not angry mom, practical mom punishing Buffy to say, I've got to teach you not to do these things. It is a parent struggling to do the right thing for her daughter. And in response, Buffy, of course, is frustrated because she needs to go save the world and she has to deal with her mom. Yet, The dialogue, her expression, all of it tells us that Buffy's frustration, she's not angry at her mom for being a mom. She wants to be the daughter her mom wants and she wants to be able to tell her mom. Her anger and and frustration comes from that dual role. It's exactly what her trunk has shown us, that she has to respond to her mom play the part with her mom of being the daughter and the high school girl and she can't reveal what's underneath and her anger and frustration is very real but she doesn't she doesn't take it out on her mom she is struggling to find a way to explain it and she can't and this is a a real conflict it's not something that is easily solvable and you have two people with good intentions who truly want the best for each other who have this conflict and that I just love the best conflict that you can have I think as a writer is that type of conflict. So Buffy resolves this by sneaking out of the house because that's the only way she can get out and she is late to the bronze but she does get there. So now we are driving forward to our climax and notice something else that from that three-quarter point to the climax action is going very fast you know we're we're moving forward there isn't more um, I don't think there's any more exposition in there it's just the events are going one after the other arising out of that three-quarter turn and moving forward 
Our climax, which fits the theme of the show as it's developing, is not only about Buffy. We see all our main characters engaged in this fight. And how they fight, particularly Willow and Xander, so fits with their characters. Willow throws holy water on Darla, who is attacking Giles, and Darla runs away. I love this for a couple reasons. One is throwing the holy water seems to fit for me with Willow because Willow is, she's not the slayer, and she has been probably the most, um, the least physical in her fighting. She is not wanting to go down into the tunnels with Buffy. I have no doubt if she had the strength or something to add, superpowers, she would be right there. But she knows that she doesn't. She goes with her strengths, which is she stays and researches with Giles and contributes that way. So the holy water fits in that it is a type of tool or weapon that we definitely believe Willow would do. I also like it because we had this early scene with Cordelia at the water fountain where Cordelia is mean to Willow and Willow runs away. Now we see Willow in a physical confrontation with a vampire and Willow throws holy water on Darla and Darla runs away. The other girl or woman runs away. This is such a nice bookend for Willow and showing of her character growth. And was it deliberate on the writer's part? I don't know. That there's water in both. That Willow runs away in one and Darla in the other. I have no idea. But it's really nice and I really like it. We also see Xander very consistent with who he is in his loyalty to Jesse. So Xander is holding a stake, but he is, it's, it's a defensive measure. And it's not clear that if he were to try to fight Jesse, that he could prevail. He's, he's got the stake because he knows he should have it, but he is trying to talk to Jesse. He's trying to reason with Jesse, despite that Jesse is a vampire. What does Willow, I mean, what does Xander really think he can, um, he can accomplish here? Because he's trying to talk Jesse into, presumably, into not killing people. And yet, Jesse can't, at this point, he can't choose to not be a vampire. It's not, uh, we don't have any reason to think that he can choose to not want to kill people. Or that really he could do anything other than what he is going to do. And yet Xander on some level knows this. He's been told this. Yet he is still trying to say, Jesse, you know, don't you remember who, who you are? Don't you want to be a good person, basically? So Xander does kill Jesse, but it's by accident. Someone else runs into them. The stakes gets pushed into Jesse's heart and Jesse is dusted. I like this so much because it fits with who Xander is. And also, I feel like we don't really want to see Xander have to kill his friend. That's something that the show has made clear. I think that that there are going to be hard choices, that there are going to be terrible losses. But at this point right now, I love that we don't we don't make Xander do that. And also if Xander and Willow were able to just slay vampires with no problem, that would really undercut the whole idea of Buffy being the one person who could do this. So all around, this works. 
going to our climax where Buffy fights Luke and prevails. This too so fits her character and the premise of the show because Buffy is strong, but she doesn't win over Luke by being physically stronger. He is presented as being extremely powerful. He did overpower her the first time they encountered each other. She wins both by her slayer strength and by who she is as a person. She is quipping. She taunts him about sunrise and fools him by throwing something. And I forget um, if it's a, a curtain or a drape, but it drops down and this artificial light floods the stage. And Luke, because she has said this about sunrise, cowers instinctively now that he is off guard she is able to stake him from behind and I love it because it makes the show so much more interesting than if Buffy were just a super being who was super strong physically it is not just that she's strong it's that she can outwit the vampires and that is something that I noticed before watching the commentary and then I watched and listened to the commentary and Joss said that as well that he wanted to show that Buffy was not just strong but also smart and that she could outwit her opponents. He also commented that her quipping and joking around is part of what makes her not Superman. It makes her human and so we worry more for her. It also makes her more interesting to me and goes with her intelligence and her wit. Now that Luke is defeated, we see the master's frustration. He is not going to get out today. And the, the Buffy and her friends have prevailed in this battle. They haven't won the war because the master is still exists, but they have prevailed and stopped the harvest. Now we are in the falling action part of the story. In that part, our protagonist reacts, absorbs the result of the climax. If the protagonist prevailed, we usually see some sort of celebration. In the hero's journey, story structure, that is a specific part of it. The protagonist gets the Holy Grail, prevails in the quest, wins the battle, and celebrates. If you are a Star Wars fan, in the original movie, you'll remember there was that everyone's getting awarded medals. So we don't have anyone getting medals here, but we do have our core four people, Giles, Xander, Willow, and Buffy, at the base of the stage, recognizing and feeling good about the fact that they won. Something I did not notice that was pointed out in the commentary is that what we don't see there are the bodies of the people that lose drained and killed before Buffy got there and that was a deliberate choice because seeing the bodies of the people that Buffy couldn't save because she couldn't get out of the house sooner would really undercut that celebration so while it is a little less realistic I like that we have that moment where despite all the costs despite that they didn't win everything and that Jesse is still gone, we do get a moment to acknowledge that yes, they stopped the harvest, they saved Sunnydale, maybe saved the world. Also part of the falling action is tying up the loose ends, the things that we have put out there and the reader wants to know how does this resolve. The major one we have here is what will happen now that so many people have seen vampires and have seen Buffy fighting them and winning. 
If that were to now bring Buffy out into the open, that would seriously undercut the series. So we have to have an explanation for how does this keep happening. And we get it from Giles. He says, people rationalize what they can and forget what they can't. This comes in the context of, I don't remember if it's Willow or Xander saying, oh, everything's going to be different. And Giles says, no, it's not, and here's why. And then we get an example of it because we hear Cordelia doing exactly what Giles says. And she seemingly has forgotten that Buffy saved her life. Uh, she rationalizes what happened by saying, oh, there were these gang members and Buffy knew them. What's interesting is within there is a sort of grudging respect for Buffy. And I have to think that comes out of Cordelia on some level remembering that Buffy saved her and definitely remembering Buffy fighting even though she is now reframing it as gang members, not vampires. We also get some hints about the future. If you are writing an ongoing series, whether it's TV or maybe movies that there's going to be another or a novel that's part of a series, it's good to have these hints about the future that get the reader interested or the audience interested in coming back to the next installment. Even if your story is self-contained, Often readers like to have a little hint about what is the future for these characters. If you're writing a romance that has a happily ever after ending, you might give a little hint about something lovely these characters will do in the future or just enough to show that yes, it will be happily ever after. If it's suspense or mystery and the protagonist has prevailed, usually the reader wants that emotional satisfaction of knowing that there are some good things in store for our protagonist and whatever other characters we've become engaged with. Maybe we want to know there's punishment for the antagonist. So this is where you tie up the loose ends and add a few hints about the future. Here what we have is Giles commenting about what else can happen on the Hellmouth, the other kinds of monsters. And we had a little of that in I think the pilot uh, first half where he's talking about the time life, the jokes about the time life books and you can have all kinds of monsters here. So again, he says that. Plus we get the hint about the future that Buffy, Xander, and Willow are going to continue to be friends and that this will be a big part of what makes Buffy's life fun as she deals with slaying vampires and that they will probably continue to help her. So these are nice hints about the future. Giles' comments are also story questions. It raises a question, what will Buffy face next? The other story questions we have, a lot of them are emotional. Going back to that point that we put our protagonist in emotional peril. We have questions about Buffy in school. She did cut out of school. There probably are going to be repercussions. We want to know how that's going to work. Buffy and her social life. Buffy and Joyce. What will happen there? Cordelia and Buffy because Cordelia continues to be a character who we come back to again and again in this two episode arc so there is a suggestion there that maybe Cordelia and Buffy will continue to interact and what will that be like. Then there is our giant story question. The master is still there so will he get out? How will he get out? What will happen? And this is something else that Joss mentioned in the commentaries which is 
his deliberate choice to keep the master trapped at the end of the two episode arc because otherwise if he's out there in the world you have to deal with your protagonist and you want him to be an ongoing villain you have to deal with your protagonist losing to the master again and again which undercuts her strength or you have to have all these uh, manipulative ways of keeping them from confronting each other or come up with reasons why they don't but by keeping him trapped he remains a threat and he is out there And even in our one-off episodes where he's not the focus, he still looms as this threat. So it keeps that tension, it keeps that story question as the series moves forward. Those are the plot points for this two-episode arc. We've now covered all of them. A few more things from the commentary that I thought were interesting. Just said that the network wanted Willow to be more cool and hip and more like Buffy, thinking the audience wouldn't be very interested in Willow as this kind of brainy, nerdy, less, uh, maybe not less active, but less confident character than Buffy. And Jaws said he insisted, no, Willow needs to be as she is and that she would have this rabid fan base because she's someone we can know and identify with. And Buffy is less so because she's that unattainable ideal. I am not sure if this came from the scene by scene or was in one of the interviews that's on the DVD, but Joss said something that I just loved. When you're writing, it's just you and the characters, and it's a great place to be. And that is so how I feel at the best moments. Sometimes I'm writing, and it's a slog, and I'm just getting from one scene to the next, and I'm just getting words down on the page. And it feels like that. But other times, and it's what keeps me writing and going back to the keyboard and going back to my characters and stories is that moment when I just feel I'm right there in that story, in that scene with those characters. And it feels so amazing. When I read back later, most of the time, what I wrote when it feels plotting and mechanical is just as good as what I write when I feel great. I don't really see a difference. I can't pick out later which scenes I really felt in the moment on, but it, it just feels so much better when it's like that. So I love that quote. Next week, we'll be talking about episode three, The Witch. That is a self-contained episode. And I love that because we can go through all the plot points, the opening conflict, the turn at the one quarter point, the midpoint, the next major plot turn, the climax and the falling action all in one story. So I am looking forward to doing that. We'll also talk about how the one-off episode still advances some of our character storylines, which is part of what keeps the audience going through the series, whether or not they like a particular one-off episode. If you are interested in spoilers, foreshadowing, I hope you'll stay around. If you do not want to hear spoilers, thank you so much for listening. You can find me at lisalilly.com or writingasasecondcareer.com. And we're back with spoilers. Angel, 
this episode at the crypt with Buffy. There are a couple more hints that he is a vampire because he knows the master and he knows the other vampires. Again, I did not pick up on that he might be a vampire, but I have heard that some people got it at that point. One thing that doesn't work for me in this scene in retrospect, because I know it's coming, is when Angel says he isn't going to go with Buffy into the tunnels. He says, I'm afraid. Given what we find out about Angel and how his character develops later, there's no way that I believe that he's afraid to go with her. Angel is so powerful. I understand why we don't send him with her. That would undercut the whole premise of the show. It's Buffy who needs to be fighting. It's Buffy, the one girl in all the world. And if we send a powerful vampire with her in the pilot episode, that's a whole different show. Later on, Buffy and Angel will fight together. Sometimes Buffy will save Angel. Once in a great while, Angel will save Buffy. And that certainly works. There is no reason you can't have our very strong protagonist being saved by other people. Xander saves Buffy. But if in your pilot you have that happen, you are signaling a much different type of story. So I, you know, I understand they had to give some reason why he wasn't going to go with Buffy. I think it's always interesting to look at these early episodes when you see where the characters in the plot goes later and see what kind of has to be retconned in order for it to work. Another example of that is Darla. She in this episode and I want to say a couple more, she is nowhere near as powerful as the, uh, not just that she'll become, but as the backstory we get later shows that she is. Darla, as her character, is developed on Buffy and Angel. We find out just how powerful she was, how smart, how strong. And so when I go back and see these early episodes and see her much more deferential to the master than I think she ever would be, and a little bit much more taken aback by Buffy than she would be, it really stands out in retrospect. This is something that is explained more or less in the commentary. And I did not know this. Joss said that initially the plan was that Willow would kill Darla. But they like the actress so much and the character so much that they decided to keep her around. So that totally makes sense to me. I think you can see that because I don't think the writers had any idea kind of who she would turn out to be or how important she was. If you're writing a novel, something to keep in mind is audience members, especially at the time Buffy was made, would would definitely give uh, the showrunners some leeway, the creators of the show some leeway in retconning characters. Because everyone understood that when a TV show starts, nobody knows if it's going to continue, how long it's going to continue. And there's a big difference between what you might do if you're looking at a season versus three seasons or five seasons or seven seasons. So audiences are generally willing to go with a certain amount of revision later. 
If you're writing a novel or a screenplay for a movie, that is self-contained and readers, I think, have a higher expectation. I certainly do. That within the world of that novel, the character change that you do, you really need to justify it. So if your character of Darla is going to be kind of in awe of the master or a little bit intimidated or a lot intimidated and then three quarters through the novel you decide to give her some backstory where she was super powerful and didn't take crap from anybody that is going to be problematic because it is not consistent you are not being consistent with your characters characters can definitely change you could have her evolve into becoming more powerful have things happen that she overcomes and she becomes more powerful but you if you give her a backstory that doesn't fit with who she is at the beginning of the novel that is something that readers will most likely notice and be very frustrated with the other thing with um, the characters here Giles there is a little bit of Giles here that I likewise don't think quite fits with what we learn about Giles later I'm okay with not seeing him fight because he is our watcher he is in this space at the beginning where he is there to prepare Buffy he's not there to be on the front lines with her that being said I see a little bit of a I feel I should say I feel a little bit misled in that I'm pretty sure he he appears as if he cannot at all fight off Darla or at least the way he acts to me does not fit with the Giles where we later find out he has this past where he raised demons. We find out he is quite a good fighter. He's very tough. He used to be called Ripper. All these things, I would have expected to see a little bit of a hint of that or at least to not see him unable to um, or maybe being the, the least, doing the least fighting in this episode. I understand why we see that. I just personally would have liked it better if maybe we just didn't see Giles fighting at all rather than kind of seeing him. I think it's Darla is attacking him when Willow throws the holy water. So I feel like that's just a a tiny bit of a mislead. And I've always been curious whether that was a misdirect to kind of take the audience with Buffy more by surprise when we find out about Giles' past or if they just hadn't really decided yet that he would have that backstory. My last foreshadowing is this scene with Luke and Buffy where Luke has grabbed her from behind and she, it looks like he's going to bite the back of her neck and she headbutts him and gets out of it. Now, why do I find that so compelling? Because in the series, I'm sorry, the season finale, we see Buffy and the master in that same position, but because the master master is so powerful not just physically but psychologically and emotionally and Buffy is frozen in fear or because he does have this kind of psychic power she's not able to get out of it with Luke despite how strong he is she did the headbutt and got away with the master she remains frozen and he kills her that tells us so much about the master's power and about Buffy's response Buffy's 
fear. It makes me wonder whether knowing the prophecy, how much did that undermine her ability to respond in that moment? And I'm sure I'll hopefully remember and explore that when we get to that episode. But I really like that foreshadowing of that moment which is then escalated and comes out so differently. That is it for this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story. Next time we'll be talking about the witch. In the meantime you can find me on Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly at lisalilly.com or at writingasasecondcareer.com. Hope to see you next time.